All right, good morning, Ridge Point Church. Hopefully you wake after that. I'm kind of sad. This is a short, like, three-week series because that music kind of gets me pumped up before we speak. Uh, listen, we're really, really glad you're here this morning, especially if you're visiting with us. We're really glad. We're glad everybody's here. Uh, we're actually in the middle of a three-week series where we're talking about what does it mean to have issues when it comes to being in control. And I think this is something that we all struggle with to some degree, uh, but to varying degrees. Some people kind of have it under control, but they struggle from time to time. And others would say, no, I know this is an area of my life where I really, really, really struggle with control because I'm, I'm passionate. I'm a passionate person. And so when I get mad, and I have a tendency at times to get mad, when I get mad, everybody knows it. Well, one of the things we're going to talk about today is we can't just use excuses anymore to say, well, it's just this kind of the way that I am. This is the way that I'm wired. Or, or maybe we come from a background. I come from a kind of an Irish heritage. And there's some people that, that think, well, if you have an Irish heritage, you tend to be a little bit hot under the collar. And sometimes we see that. But part of what we're looking at this in this series is if we are really trying to follow Jesus, and I don't know if that's everybody here, but if you've said, I've made a decision in my life that I want to follow Jesus, if we really want to follow Jesus uh, in, in every facet of our life, when it comes to our, our, our thought life, when it comes to uh, what our heart's meditating on, to our, to our speech, to our actions, then one of the things we have to get to in our life is to figure out, how do I make sure that I have control so that there aren't these angry outbursts, so that when I get mad at my family, I'm not doing anything to get them mad at, back at me. I want to make sure that I'm in control. Because as I look at the life of Jesus, now it, it wasn't, this doesn't mean that, that Jesus always was, was cheery and happy and everything was always polite and nice. It wasn't. There were times that Jesus uh, picked up a whip and drove the money changers out of the temple. But Jesus was always in control. Even in the midst of having to show some tough love, he was always in control. And so one of the things in this series, we're looking at the book of James, and the book of James was written by Jesus' half-brother. And as he writes this, he says, I want to make sure to the church in Jerusalem that he was ministering to, but just as much to the church in the modern-day United States, he wants to make sure that we have control. And if we're going to have control, we have to start to exhibit that in our life, because we said this last week. But we said that control is often won or lost in the smallest of battlefields. That if we're sitting here and we realize that what our heart is meditating on, the things that we're focused on, eventually becomes my communication. So my heart leads to my speech, and my speech inexplicably leads to my actions. And so it begins by saying, I want to exhibit control in terms of what I put into my life, because I want to make sure that my speech is right, because control, the battle for control is often won or lost on the smallest of battlefields. And I told a story, if you were here last week, I told a story about being five years old and my uncle gave me a chance to drive his boat for the first time and I almost knocked our whole family out of the boat by turning a little bit too quickly. And you would have thought, as a young kid, I learned my lesson that control is won or lost in these small battlefields. But if I fast forward just a few years to the time I was nine years old, uh, I lived in, in St. Pete, not far from here, about an hour and a half from here. And, and my best friend at the time was a, was a kid by the name of Eddie Regal. And Eddie lived three doors down from my house. And he was about a year older than I was, but he lived about three doors down from my house. And, and we hung out all the time. And because we hung out all the time and because we were red-blooded American boys, we were competitive at anything. Like if, if you gave us a sport, we played basketball, we played football, we played wiffle ball, we'd wrestle, and we just wanted to beat the tar out of each other because we were best friends. And, and that's kind of how the, the, the way that guys roll. We wanted to beat each other. We'd race. Well, about, uh, about that time, a couple years before, I'd gotten a bike for the first time. We're riding bikes. 
And about the time I turned nine, there's kind of this coming-of-age moment for young boys where your parents come and say, okay, you're allowed to ride your bike around the block. Like, that was a big deal. I remember Eddie being a year older. He could ride his bike around the block. And I was like, Mom, Dad, please, can I do this? And they said, no, no, no. And finally, my parents said, okay, you're now ready. You can ride around the block. And so, of course, the first thing I do is I go to Eddie's house and I say, man, let's go race. We're going to race around the block. And, and so it became like a big neighborhood deal. Everyone came out. I had a younger brother. He had a younger brother. And, and so they're there. Some of our friends are there. And our parents showed up to watch this race. I'm thinking, oh, this is going to be awesome. But, but I really thought, like, going into this, Eddie was a year older. He's been doing this for a little bit longer than I was. I was just hoping to be competitive with him. If I could even keep it close, I'd feel really good. And so they're there. And I forgot who it was. But someone said, okay, ready, set, go. And we start to race. And about halfway through the race, we're kind of neck and neck going back and forth. But about halfway through, I start to notice Eddie's getting tired. Like, he starts to back off a little bit, and I'm, I'm getting ahead, and, and I'm a bike length ahead. And before I know it, I'm like a full house ahead of him. Well, we, we made the turn to come onto our block, and I peeked for just a second. I saw Eddie was now almost a full house and a half behind me. And I thought, man, I got this. We had about a half a block left. And so I'm riding as hard as I can, and I get to Eddie's house, which again is like three doors down from mine. So we have three houses left, and I felt like I had a pretty good lead, but I wanted to make sure. And so at that point, I'm riding my bike, and I, and I peek back for just a second, just to confirm, because I'm thinking, man, at this point, I could just take my feet off the pedal and just cruise because I got this thing won. And I turn for just a second to look back to see where Eddie is. And I see Eddie and confirm that I have a big enough lead now, but what I don't see is as I turn back, Right in front of me, there's a rock. And it just, it wasn't a huge rock. If, if I was paying attention, I would have been able to just probably ride right over it. But because I'm already kind of turned back, I hit that rock, and it turns my steering wheel just enough, or my handlebars just enough, that it kind of turns my wheel. And before I know it, I am head over heels in love with the pavement in front of me. Like, I am straight. Like, I felt the momentum coming over, and I'm trying to stop the momentum, and I can't. I'm riding too fast. And I finally, I just jump off my bike, and it's like face down, eating gravel, and, and, and of course, my mom's watching the whole thing. And mom's over there like, my baby, I got to make sure my baby's okay. And, and I'm like, mom, get away. I still got to win the race. Hold on. And so I'm, I'm, lit, I'm not even getting on a bike. I'm running across the finish line with, with my bike trying to say, and, 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 and what I learned all over again, and what we learn in life over and over, is that when we think we have control, when we think we have this thing figured out, all it takes is something small in our life. And we lose control all over. And here's what I've seen, just in the way that we relate to people, is, is we tend to want to be in control of areas that we have no control over at all. Uh, maybe in, 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 in a relationship that you're in, maybe it's a marriage relationship right now, and, and you want to fix things when it comes to the relationship, but, but you're so focused on, well, if the other person would fix this, and, and we tend to want to control areas that we have no control over. Maybe you look at the marital friction that you're having, or, or maybe it's a friend friction that you have, and, and you look at that and say, but this person's doing all this stuff wrong. That's fine. You can't control all of that other stuff that they're doing. You can't control the habits or the actions of somebody else, but you can control your reaction. And so really James is writing, saying if we're going to embrace this message... If we're going to embrace the message that Jesus teaches and the message that Jesus modeled, then we have to come at it and say the message of Jesus is the most important thing. See, last week we talked about that it goes from our heart to our, to our speech to our actions. And then we said the message that we have is key. And I want to look at this verse before we get into James chapter 3. 
I do want to look at one verse this morning. It says in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18, the message about the cross doesn't make any sense to lost people. But for those of us who are being saved, it is God's power at work. So if we said last week that the message that we have is key, and we believe that today, if you're a follower of Jesus, the message we have is key. It's foundational to who we are, and it is what drives everything that we do as believers in Christ and everything we do as a church is the message of the cross. And so it says at first to people who don't know, who are lost, it doesn't make sense to them. They can't figure it out. But for those who are believers, for those who are being saved, it is God's power at work in our life. And so the moment that it goes beyond me just coming to church, because we can do that, especially, I think, in in our culture, in modern-day United States, we can come to church, we can hear inspiring messages, and we can sing songs and think, okay, I felt really good, and we leave here without the message of the cross transforming us. And so we leave here and we say, well, why do I feel like I've been doing this for months and I don't really feel any traction, I don't feel any difference? It's because the message of the cross... Is supposed to be God's power at work in us. And the moment God's power comes to work at, inside of us, then it allows us to share that message because the beginning part of the verse says the message doesn't make sense to lost people. The message that we have doesn't make sense. And so if we believe as a church, and we do, if we believe that we have a mission field of 300,000 people in Polk County that need to hear the message of the cross, we believe that as a church. And I know that sounds crazy and audacious, but we believe that that is our mission field. 300,000 people in Polk County. If we believe that, then the message of the cross needs to be God's power at work inside of us. And the moment I make that decision, the moment I say I'm going to go from just kind of coming into church and observing what's happening to now allowing God's message to infuse inside of me and to change me and to radically alter the way that I'm living. Until we believe that, we're not really being consistent with the message. And so James here is writing in James chapter 3. And and up until this point, to give a little bit of the backstory, James is the half-brother, physically the half-brother of Jesus. He wasn't a believer early on in in who Jesus was, but eventually he comes to not only become a believer, but actually be active and be a leader in the church at Jerusalem. And the whole context of of this book is to say, I want to make sure that our faith is active. I want to make sure that our faith makes sense, that it's working itself out. It's not that salvation is by faith and works, but that salvation is by a faith that works. And so he had begun in James chapter 3 using a bunch of analogies. And by the way, throughout the rest of James chapter 3, we're going to see analogy after analogy when he talks about how it is that we control our tongue. In fact, he said about if we could control our tongue, he compares it early on with the rudder on a ship and the bit in a horse's mouth. He said if we could control our tongue, we would be the perfect person able to, able to control the whole body. And he uses those analogies. And then in verse 5, he says this, latter part of verse 5. We picked up, uh, we left off in, in the first part of verse 5. We pick up today in the latter part of, of verse 5. And he says this, How great a forest is set ablaze, by such a small fire. So a third analogy that he brings in here, he says, your tongue is like a small fire. Uh, and, and, and we know, we've done this from time to time where, where we are speaking and, and we, we don't mean to communicate something. Maybe it's a miscommunication. Maybe we got really frustrated and we said something that we shouldn't have said, but it didn't seem like a big deal at first. Uh, in fact, looking back in, in retrospect, we say it really wasn't that big a deal. 
But the other person heard it, and they took it wrong, and, and I didn't communicate well. And, and before I knew it, that small fire had, had created a blaze that was out of control. Well, that's what our tongue does. In fact, I can remember growing up with my brother, kind of the era that we grew up in terms of what we watched on TV. Sitcoms were kind of the rage, and everyone was watching these 30-minute these shows, uh, shows. And what would happen in the context of 30 minutes, or really with commercials and everything else, more like 23 minutes, is there'd be some sort of conflict and some sort of resolution in a short amount of time. Every show was the same formula over and over. There was conflict and there was resolution. But especially on the family-oriented shows that we sometimes would watch, it would always seem like the family conflict was started because of some sort of misunderstanding that was spoken out loud. And and maybe one of the children said something and, and, and a parent only heard part of the conversation and they, they thought the whole world was falling apart. And, and every time I watched one of these shows, I remember sitting here at a young age, just as we're growing up, thinking if someone would just step in and explain the whole thing, it just is a misunderstanding, like it was a small fire. But because of that small fire, it blazes out of control. And, and before you know it, the resolution is much more complicated than it ever had to be. And I can remember at a young age wanting to yell at the TV screen saying, one of you guys, just go talk this out. You can figure this out. It's not that big a deal. And every time there was conflict, and the conflict was very small, but it grew out of control, and eventually the resolution had to be much more severe. And I'd look at that and say, yeah, but that's just a, a TV show. It's, it's, it's not that, that big a deal. Life doesn't happen that way. And then I see family conflict. And I see family members that stop speaking to each other. And it's probably most observed during the holiday seasons because you could probably think of people that are in your family right now that used to be really really close but because of a misunderstanding that was spoken because something was said out of place because someone got mad at this holiday party now they don't speak at all i can think of of family members that i have that man it used to be every every thanksgiving every christmas every one they were together for those holidays and now they don't see each other at all anymore. They live in the same town. Why? Because our tongue can do that. Our tongue can, can have that, that small fire that leads to a blaze that rages out of control entirely. Our words have that ability, the ability to, to create a blaze that rages out of control. And our words have power. In fact, I could, I could give you, I'm gonna, in fact, we're going to do this. I'm going to give you a statement right now, and you're going to finish the statement for me. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but either way, I've heard words and names. I've heard both of those. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but, but names or words will never hurt me. And how many know that that's not true at all? Our words have power. Like we think, oh, I can, I can deal with that. And yet so many people, as they get older in life, they realize, man, someone said this and it's kind of stuck with me. This is probably more of a true statement. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will cripple my unstable and heavily dependent level of self-worth. How many identify more with that than the other? <laughs> Listen, hopefully it's not this severe. But the truth is, is that if, if, if I am out riding my bike and, and I fall off my bike and I get scraped up, it hurts. But much more damaging long-term is the words that we use to communicate. And so James is riding and he's laying this foundation and he's about to get much more serious about this. He's been talking about the, the power that our tongue has and he's been, he's been kind of building up to a point that he's about to make. 
And he says, listen, what your tongue does, the words that you use, they're very powerful, they're very important, they're supposed to convey a message. In fact, everything that we do, it communicates a message. Our words are supposed to convey a message, but that power that we have, see, earlier in verse 5, he had said this, the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts great things, can do great things, it's very powerful. It has the power to do good, or it has the power to do bad. And he says the tongue can set ablaze, can, it can kind of blaze out of control. In verse 6, it says this, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. James, don't hold back. Tell me what you really think. <laughs> like he lays this out and says, here's what your tongue has the ability to do. And he says, your tongue can stain your whole body. It can set on fire the entire course of your life. And a tongue that is doing that is, is set on fire by hell itself. And I read that, I'm like, well, that, that, that's kind of severe. You're, you're taking that really, really to the extreme here, James. But then I start to think about people who are in situations. Maybe they're in a workplace environment. And someone does something and, and they don't like it and, and they lose control for just a second. See, we spend all of this time focusing on wanting to control things that are beyond our control. And then when it comes to things that we can control, we don't think about it at all. So maybe we're in a workplace setting and, and someone does something and, and we, it hurts the company and we're not sure if management's aware of it. Management calls a big meeting and as management calls that big meeting, uh, we sit there and we worry and we fret. And maybe we have a couple of days worth of, of staying up late and wondering what is management going to do. And it starts to eat away at us and, and we can't sleep and there's anxiety and there's fear. And we worry about what is management going to do? Is anybody going to come forward about the mistake that was made? They, we worry about all these things beyond our control and we never take time. They say, okay, if I'm going to go in this meeting and management's about to deal with this, what is my reaction going to be? How am I going to respond? See, I can't control what management's going to say. I can't control what someone else is going to do. I can't control the habits and, and the characteristics of another person, but I can control my reaction. So instead of me worrying about what's management going to do and what's going to happen in this scenario that I have no control over, I can say, God, I don't know what's going to happen. But I want to make sure before I go into that meeting, I want to make sure I go, before I go into that interview, I want to make sure before I deal with this family friction that I'm in a right spot, God, first with you. Because I want my values and my actions to reflect my relationship with you. Because everything that I do communicates a message. I can't control what somebody else does, but I can control my reaction. So I should spend more of my time not focus on worrying about things that I can't control, but instead focusing on, God, what can I control? How can I prepare myself for what is to come? Because if not, I go in that situation and I get frustrated with management, I get frustrated with this other coworker, and, and, and in a moment of, of just absolute being out of control, that, that fire rages inside of me and it comes out the way that it shouldn't. And I stop reflecting Christ. And instead, like it read there, in verse 6, it stains my whole body, setting on fire the entire course of my life, and set on fire by hell itself. Then it says in verse 7, for every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. And James just keeps throwing it out there. <laughs> he says it's straight from hell, that it's full of deadly poison. He says this is the power of a tongue that is out of control. And sticks and stones hurt, but not nearly as much as a venomous tongue that tears people apart. 
And then he says this, and this is kind of the point of what we're getting to this morning. He says this, speaking still about our tongue. He says, with it, with our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Oh, the hypocrisy of this. Because we gather together as a church. When we gather together as a church, we do a couple of things. We study God's word together, whether it's on Sunday morning when, when, when myself or someone else is up here speaking, or whether it's in groups when we sit down and we have discussions. We talk about, God, we believe that you're great. We believe that you're powerful. We believe that you're gracious. We talk about, uh, God, we believe you're absolutely sovereign, that you're in control, that, that you're omniscient, that you're all powerful. Like all these things, we talk about God, and we use our tongue to, to bless God in terms of studies, but we also use our tongue to sing songs about how great God is. And we gather together as a church and we celebrate. We celebrate by singing songs either to God or about God. And we sing these songs. And this morning we sang songs that had depth to them. We sang a song called We Believe. And it's all about this is what we believe as a church. It's really the Apostles' Creed. Uh, we believe in God the Father. We believe in Jesus' His Son. And we believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe in all those things. And it's important for us to have depth in the words that we sing. And, and, and we, we sang a song about, God, I, I want more of you, God. I want to be able to have those things. Let's sort of look at a couple of these lyrics real quick. I want to do this. A couple of the lyrics that we sang this morning. Hope which was lost now stands renewed. I give my life to honor this, the love of Christ, the Savior King. Now, we sang a song, and, and I think sometimes we can fall into a state where we're just kind of, the words are up on the screen, so we're not even paying attention to what we're singing. I want us to do this this morning, do this exercise to say, here's what we sang this morning as a church. Here's what we gathered together to sing. Here's where our hope is. Our hope which was lost now stands renewed. And God, I give my life to honor this. I give my life to honor this. What? The love of Christ. My Savior King. Like that's what we've given our life to. In the same song it said this. Let now the church shine as your bride. That you saw in your heart and you, as you offered up your life. So it's speaking first to the church. It's saying, church, this is us. Those that we'll get to in a second that have been adopted as your own. God, we want the church to shine as your bride. That you saw in your heart, the church that you saw in your heart as you offered up your life. Then it says this, let now the lost be welcomed home by the saved and redeemed, those adopted as your own. So as it says, church, here's what we want to do. We want to shine as the bride of Christ. And we do that because the last part of the verse says we have been saved and redeemed. We've been adopted into God's family. And because of that, now as we get to the middle part of the verse, it says, now the lost, those people who are outside the church, be welcomed home by the church. Why? Because the message that we have is paramount. And if God has transformed our life, then we want to reach people around us with the hope of that very same message. The saved and redeemed, those adopted as your own. One more, another song we sung said this. Like a, mighty, like a rushing wind, Jesus breathed within. Lord, have your way. Like a mighty storm, stir within my soul. Lord, have your way. And so we're singing songs to God and about God. We're singing songs to say, God, have your way with me. And James writes and says, that's cool, that's powerful. We should probably keep doing that. But if we sing songs and we speak in a way that lifts God up, but we speak in a way that tears people down, then our message just is not a consistent message. 
See, there's, there's three things that, are, that we communicate. There's three things that we focus on. When we talk about the way that we speak, there are three things that we're communicating. Number one, we're communicating exactly how much we believe that we love God. James here is talking about that we, you know, we, how inconsistent it is if we, if we worship God and we bless God and curse man who's made an image of God. He says that message is inconsistent because God has created every human being in the image of God. And we can't pick and choose. It would be awesome if, 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 if Jesus came and said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to love the people that you're really close to. I want you to love your family members, and I want you to love the people. Maybe if you're in a family group, I want you to love the people that are in your family group. But our calling is to love people generally, specifically every person we come in contact with. And we do that because human beings have been created in the likeness and in the image of God. And so we cannot lift up God and tear down people that have been created in the image of God if we do it communicate something about what we really think about God because God created them that way in the first place. And so when we communicate with our tongue, we're communicating exactly what we think about God. We're also communicating what we think about other people that are part of, of the church. First, communicates what we think about God. Second, communicates the love or the lack of love for people who are spiritual brothers and sisters. We're going to show a verse in just a second from John 13, verse 35. Don't, don't put it up there yet. But John 13, 35, it says, it's the first part of the verse, Jesus is speaking, and he says this. By this, people will know that you're my disciple. Now, Jesus is speaking at that point to his early followers, his actual disciples. But he could just as easily be speaking to us today as a church in the United States, as, as Ridgepoint Church, or even the Universal Church. He could be speaking to us right now. And he could say to you right now, to Ridgepoint Church, here's the one way that the whole world is going to know that you're my disciples. And if we could list one thing right now and make it palatable and say, okay, this is one thing that we'd really like. If, if, if everybody in the church did this, it would show the whole world that we're actually following Jesus. And if we, if we wrote down that one thing right now, maybe if, if I gave you the power right now and said, okay, what's the one thing? What's the one thing that if we did this as a church, the world would know that we're actually following Jesus? We could write down things like, well, if, if, if we know every worship song, that song, we're probably disciples of Jesus. Maybe. Or maybe if I stand in church and I'm raising my hands and I'm singing, showing a sign of surrender to God. Or, or, or maybe if I have the Jesus bumper sticker on my car, everyone's going to know then that I'm actually following Jesus. Or I got the t-shirt or all of these things. And I'm not saying any of these things are wrong. Maybe it's by I go on a mission trip and I go to serve God and that's how the world's going to know that you're my disciple. All those things are good and well. But Jesus here is speaking to his disciples. And he says, by this the world will know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another. Not just love for the world. We'll get to that in a second. But he says, by this world's going to know that you're my disciples because all of you guys as a church are getting along. And not just Ridgepoint Church, but the churches in Polk County and the churches in the United States, that when we see each other, other believers, other churches, as brothers and sisters in Christ and not the enemy and the, competitive and the competition, we look at each other and say, we are supposed to have a love one for another. By this world will know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another. I love, because we had a chance to see this in a tangible way every week. I love in between the two services, uh, have people lingering after first service and people are coming in. And for a short time, you see the whole church gathered together, both services gathered together. I don't often get a chance to see that before the first service because they've got to be here at 9 o'clock and no one wants to get here that early. But this morning, not even knowing this was coming, 
this happened. It was like 8.45, and, and, and I walked out. We're kind of hanging out, and there were a bunch of people here early this morning. And they're kind of lingering in the back, and they're having coffee, and they're talking. And I said, this is a small microcosm of what heaven is supposed to be like. We're supposed to enjoy being together. By this, the world will know that you're my disciples, that you have love one for another. Over in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, Paul is writing, and he talks about, the, the, again, the, the power that our, our conversation has. And he says this, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. As soon as we hear that, probably some of you think, okay, it's talking about no corrupting talk. I shouldn't use bad words. But that's not really what's in view here. Because he contrasts it with, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. He's not just speaking about not using bad words or corrupt words. He's saying our speech should reflect Christ in such a way that our words should be used to build people up, not to tear people down. And so James is writing saying the tongue is important. Paul is writing saying the tongue is important. Jesus is speaking saying our words are very, very important because it communicates exactly what we think about God. It communicates the love or lack of love we have for people who are spiritual brothers and sisters. And finally it communicates our heart for the world around us. One more, a couple more verses. In Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, it says this. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders. So we already, t- we already talked about the church, how we're supposed to love people inside the church. But here in Colossians, Paul is writing again, and he says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, towards people that are outside the church, making the best use of the time. So when we're dealing with people that are outside of the church, be wise, make the best use of the time. Because in verse 6 it says this, let your speech, the words that you have, the words you communicate, let your speech always be gracious Season with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. When we have discussion with people who are outside the church, our conversation becomes really important. And they've been watching because everything we do communicates something. They've been watching our demeanor. They've been talking about if we actually believe the things that we're saying. But our conversation is key. And so it says this. Because the message is so important. It says, be wise. Walk in wisdom when dealing with someone who's outside the church. But let your speech be full of grace but also seasoned with salt. So it needs to have a little bit of sugar. It needs to have some grace there, but also needs to have some content. It needs to have some salt there. It has to have both of those things because our message communicates what we believe, and how we communicate that message shows how much we actually love the God that we serve. And so Paul is writing, and James is writing, and Jesus is speaking, saying our conversation is really important. This isn't something we just gloss over and we miss. Because wrapping it up in verses 10 through 12, He comes out with some more analogies. He says, from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. So the same thing. We, we bless God. We curse man made in the image of God. And he said, from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. These things ought not to be so. And he says, he asks a question in verse 11. Does the spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? The answer to that is, of course not. Verse 12. Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. So it brings out analogy after analogy to say, when, when we bear fruit that is not consistent with the vine that we are birthed from, it simply is, is not consistent. And so our vine, we're tied into Christ. 
And so the fruit that we bear comes across in the conversations that we have and the way that we love the people around us. And he says, tie into that vine. Tie, tie into that. Be where we're supposed to be. And so what that means in my life is i got to be very careful about the way I process information, the things that my heart's meditating on, the speech that I have, my actions. i got to be careful of all of that because all of that points back to what I really believe about God. I'm fortunate to have some really, really good friends in my life, but there's two people I can point to that are in different walks of life entirely. But they display some of the characteristics of what we've talked about the last two weeks more than any people that I know. And the thing I see that is different, the thing I try to model from, from their life, is that they are very, like we talked about last week, they're very slow to speak, but they're very quick to listen. In fact, if I sit down and have a conversation, unlike most people, unlike what I'm often guilty of, we're so quick to interject our opinion and our thoughts into this. But they sit there and, and they'll hear us share, hey, here's what I'm struggling with, here's what I'm dealing with, and they'll ask questions to get more information. And they're very slow to process the information, and they're very slow to, to give out counsel to make sure that it's good counsel. And you can just see in the way that they process information, the questions that they ask, that they're trying to come up with a very good, God-honoring solution. And the thing I can see is that not only is it how they give out advice, but it's also how they live their life. See, part of our reason that we struggle with control is because we're trying to live life so quickly. We jump from one thing to the next, and it's this family function, and it's, it's, it's this church function, it's this work function, it's this, I got this responsibility, I got this, and this, and this, and this. And before we know it, we feel extremely overwhelmed. And we lose control because we've not been tied into our, our root, firmly planted in Christ. And so God says, the best thing you can do is just slow down. Sit down and listen to me for a while. Don't interject your opinion, don't interject what you think you should do. But just sit down and listen to me for a while. Slow the pace of life down. And if we do that, our control instantly starts to ramp up. No longer are we, in the midst of a heated exchange, going to allow what's on the inside in a bad way to come out. But because my meditation has been on Christ, because I've been focusing on Him, then when I start to get squeezed, if my meditation has been on God and on Christ, what I'm supposed to be doing, then when I'm squeezed, Christ comes out. So we're challenged this week as we get ready to wrap up. As first off, if, if I talked mostly today, we talked about that this is predominantly for people who are, who are believers who say, I want to follow Christ in my actions. If that's not you, if you're sitting here saying, well, I love that idea, but that's not for me because I'm not following Christ, my first challenge to you would be, uh, when is it time to make that decision? To say, okay, I've, I've heard this talking about Jesus. I want to be an actual follower of him. If, if that's where you're at, listen, I'm going to be down front after the service. I'd love to talk to you, pray with you whatever it takes to get to that point of you accepting Jesus. But if you've already been at that point, and you're saying, I want to follow Jesus in, in, my, in my heart, in my, in my words, in my actions, then what I challenge you to do this week, and it's hard because I can already feel, and as, as David Weddle was kind of joking around, like the holidays are upon us, November hits, and, and there's already that, that rush that's happening. I challenge you this week, just slow that rush down a little bit. Find time and say, God, I don't want to come with an agenda. I just want to come and sit down and listen to you. Because I know at some point in the next couple of weeks, I'm going to be squeezed. And when I'm squeezed, I want to ooze you and not ooze myself. Because I can be really ugly, but you never are. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for grace and mercy that you show in our life on a constant basis. Grace that is totally undeserved. But God, you show us favor. I thank you for that. Uh, God, I pray for people that are struggling right now because of 
uh, a lack of control. God, I pray they find their, their root to be firmly entrenched in Christ. Uh, God, I pray that when, when we start to be squeezed, that we reflect His glory on the world around us. God, give us the strength and the ability to do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.